Our willingness is all that is important. As with all the qualities of the heart, they ripen and mature and blossom in their own time and in their own way. Positioning our footfalls in the direction of forgiveness. I am willing to forgive you. returning once again to the experience of the breathing, Just being aware once more of the changing sensations of the breath as it enters and leaves the body, being aware of the other sensations in the body. or judging, just allowing the truth to reveal itself moment to moment.
last few minutes. It feels really important for me to acknowledge that um, I've been on a retreat for a number of weeks and um, uh, just speaking about South Africa has really brought up a vast amount of feelings for me. and. It would be unfair for me not to acknowledge that. And what I'd like to do is sort of throw all of this stuff sort of up in the air. <laughs> because, um, you know, uh, I just don't know. As a way of sort of grounding myself, what I'd like to do, with your permission, is just speak a little from my own experience, as I wasn't intending to do, um, about my journey of forgiveness, just to get us into whatever we meant to do today. It's very important for me that this day unfolds um, organically <coughs> with what each of us bring and the hearts that we bring and the stories that we bring. And so I just would like to offer you my story and then we see where we go with, with the day. As I mentioned, when I was born in South Africa, my, my mother and father were not expecting to have children and it was a great surprise to them when nine months after they were married exactly to the day <laughs> I was born. <laughs> and they re resolved that, that they would give me everything that they could in their life. And, um, their own 
childhood were very difficult and complicated and they wanted me to have everything that they never had. And in their wisdom, they decided that the best thing for me as a young boy was to send me off to a boarding school in South Africa, which they did when I was a very young boy. And I spent my whole childhood 300 miles away from home. And at that boarding school, I was um, severely sexually and physically abused at that school. And on my first meditation retreat in 1980, 1982, in Massachusetts, my first long one, it was during that retreat that for the first time I was able to look back with a clarity and a perspective and an objectivity on what had happened at the boarding school and really realized for the first time that what had happened there was really wrong, that I wasn't to blame and that I'd been profoundly betrayed both by the people that my parents had entrusted me to and really by my parents themselves. And so it was a stormy and wild time for me. The emotions and feelings of that time were certainly the greatest I'd ever experienced. And for months and months and months I was consumed with a lot of real wild rage which was a foreign experience for me up until that point and I was furious with my parents and it was during that time that I got a letter from my mother Adelaide and in the letter she said we really don't understand your father and I why it is that you've given up your career as a certified public accountant and, and why you've shaved your head and why you're in a monastery and why you're meditating it's just very confusing and we're concerned but the bottom line is that we love you and we always will and it was like those words cut right through the drama that I was in and I experienced for the first time uh, a sense of forgiveness that so was quite new for me I'd been practicing with Michelle MacDonald who is one of my teachers and she'd been encouraging me to do exactly what we did today just be willing to forgive you don't have to forgive it's not your agenda that's like, that's God's work, you know. But if you're willing to forgive, if you incline your footsteps in the direction, it will happen in its own time. And so I got this letter from Adelaide, and it was like, it was just this, it was like a bomb. I can still feel it in the middle of this storm. And I thought, oh, great. It's like, you know, I've done with forgiveness. I've, you know, dealt with sexual abuse, and now I can get back to the breath, you know. And it was like the next sitting or the next day, boom, it was all back again, you know. And so it's been, you know, over these years, forgiveness has its seasons. And that was one of the first lessons that I learned, is that it's a process. That forgiveness is a process. And that any agenda that I bring to the unfolding of the miracle of forgiveness is just getting in the way. And so that is the first lesson that I offer is, is that forgiveness is a process calling forth the deepest and the greatest patience. You know, every bit of impatience, and there's a considerable amount of it around me, is just a stumbling block over which I consistently and persistently fall. And so patience and process have been two of the most important lessons I've learned along the way. 
And so what I did was after that retreat, I hopped on an airplane and flew back to South Africa and sat down with Adelaide and Ron, my father, and told them everything that had happened. And they were absolutely shattered. They had no idea. They said, well, why didn't you tell us? And I said, well, I didn't tell you because, you know, in our family, we're also busy protecting one another from the truth and what's difficult. I said, there was just no permission to tell you. It was unthinkable. But it feels really important that I tell you now. And they were really upset and we cried a lot together and they apologized. It was a very important moment, that moment. And I realized then how important it was to tell the truth of what happened. And that to do it from as clear and as loving and kind a place as possible, I could not have told them the truth when I was on retreat. But I was able to tell them the truth. And then I called up the boarding school and I said, you know, I want to come for a visit. So, you know, they always like so happy, like, here's Gavin Harrison, he's a certified public accountant. He <laughs> did so well, he went overseas, he worked in the Middle East, he lived in New York, he's like a great success, you know. Come back, I said, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, the, I said, I want three meetings. I want a meeting with the headmaster and some of the teachers who were there when I was there. I want a meeting with the, um, with the whole team teaching body and I want a meeting with the students. They thought, great, this will be very inspiring for <laughs> So, so, you know, I went and um, uh, I remember I was wearing a leather jacket at the time. That was my sort of scene at that time. And I think they were a little shocked when I arrived in my leather jacket because, you know, South Africa is very conservative. But I went into the headmaster's office and he leant back in his chair. I remember him, he said, Oh, and here's the rugby team and the soccer team and the cricket team, and they're all doing so well in the league, you'll be so happy to know. And, da -da. and I said to him, I said, you know, I'm not really interested. I said, I have something that I need to say, and my only request is that you listen to every word that I have to say. And I said to him, I want to tell all of you what happened when I was here at the school 25 years ago and have no concern about the accuracy of my words, for what I remember is clearer to me than the books on your desk. And I told them everything that happened. I told them of the sexual abuse involving masters and older boys, and I told them of the physical abuse, and I told them of the effect that it had on my life. And they kind of were crushed, they like sunk deeper, and he went like, he sort of receded further and further behind his desk, you know. And the minister who was there, a wonderful man who was there when I was there, he was just like, you know, hands over. And at the end of it, he said to me, well, tell me who did it, and we'll prosecute. And, you know, this was terrible, you know, it should never have happened. And I said to him, I'm not here to blame. I said, I'm here for three reasons. I said, there was nobody here to protect me 25 years ago. It's not going to do any good, you know, going after the people who did it. I said, I'm here, first of all, to unburden myself. And I said, secondly, I'm here to speak truth in a place that almost destroyed me. And I said, thirdly, I'm here in the hope that this never happens again in the school. 
and he said to me, well, you know, this is a Christian school and we sing hymns and, you know, um, we read from the Bible every day, so it can't be happening now. You know? And I said to him, I said, you know, you can speak about Jesus Christ until you're blue in the face, but I said, until you have conversation about sexuality and a door that is open for the young boys to come to, and until sexual abuse is talked about, you can be sure that it's going on as we speak. And I went on and spoke with the other teachers and with all of the students in along the same vein. And that was a further lesson I learned because when I left the school that day, I really did feel unburdened. There was something very powerful and very freeing about contradicting the energy of history and the constriction of history by going back there and speaking. And none of the masters and none of the boys who did it were there. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It was just speaking truth in the most appropriate and the most, with the clearest intention that made all the difference. And I remember afterwards going to this little park in Kimberley, which is where the school was, uh, where I used to hide away when I was a kid. It was a place where I was safe from the other boys. And I was lying there on the grass, just sort of relishing the feeling of, of, of being freed. And this little kid came along, and he was wearing his sort of uniform with his gray trousers and his black jacket and his straw hat, you know, just like we all did, and ties. And he came up to me and he said, Mr. Harrison, you know, he said to me, he said, thank you so much for coming today. He said, you are so radical. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, I said, you know, I'm not radical at all. I said, what you he heard today, you should have heard every day of your life. It's only the truth. So, when I came back to America, I went and I accumulated a whole lot of literature because I spoke with the headmaster and the teachers and they said, well, send us stuff to help us and everything. So I got this great big pile of literature and I sent it off to the boarding school. And I never heard a word and have never heard a word ever since. And at the end of the year, when the annual magazine came with all the pictures of the old boys and stories of their visits to the school and how great they're doing. <laughs> there wasn't a mention of Gavin Harris and his return home. And you know, that was another message, uh, another lesson that, that I learned is that forgiveness is really a selfish process in the sense that you have to complete, I've had to completely let go of the effect it has on other people. That letting go of outcome, whether or not people or situations change, the true freedom in the practice of forgiveness is the freedom of self, of letting go of the tit for tat, letting go of the revenge, letting go of the, of the impulse for retribution, letting go of outcome. That's why, you know, I said that, you know, at the beginning that forgiveness feels to me like a practice of the greatest self-generosity, you know. It's setting oneself free from history. And the thing that I found over the years, which is why um, 
I started the the uh, instructions the way I did today is that with all of these practices of the heart, loving kindness, you know, the Buddha taught practices on loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, which are called the divine abodes, the divine abodes of the heart. All of these always start with oneself because until these forces of the heart are consolidated within oneself, they cannot flow outwards. They're a contrivance to some degree. They're uh, a creation rather than just an expression of one's deepest essence. And so with forgiveness, it's, so, it's been so important for me to go back and be willing to populate those places within myself where there's hardness and where I'm stuck and where there is self-crucification and non-acceptance going on so that I can begin to hold those places with a loving, accepting capacity of forgiveness and from that begins to flow the forgiveness of other people. And so with all of these practices, um, beginning with oneself seems to be uh, uh, as far as my experience is concerned, the most important place to begin. It's almost as though one level of forgiveness blossoming kind of opens up and gives the permission for a deeper level of woundedness and pain to open up and then to begin to populate that with a willingness to forgive, a willingness just to be there, a willingness to rest in what's difficult, what's painful and then forgiveness blossoms and letting go, we mature, we ripen, the next layer opens and then we have to be there again. And, you know, for me, certainly, this process of dealing with sexual abuse has been so humbling because every time I feel comfortable, every time I feel I'm really there, it's like maybe I'm completely over it. And then it's like, whoom, you know, there's just another level of succulence, another level of possibility that needs to be populated again. You know, and I've been practicing for 20 years now with whatever sincerity I'm able to bring to it. And as I say, I've been on retreat for these last three weeks and I kind of was hoping and um, you know that it was going to be really easy and lovely. And it was lovely in many ways. It was also immensely difficult. And just a reminder that this journey to the heart of life, this journey of forgiveness, this journey of opening to the truth is one that calls forth immense capacity for patience and a willingness just to have a long, enduring mind. And for me, the practice of forgiving is always there, is always there. So what I think I would like to do is open this up a little to just to get a sense, perhaps, of where we are with this day and um, 
where, where we gonna go? Is there anything that anybody would like to bring forward? There's one thing. Yes. Um, I said somewhere in all of these here. Somewhere. Um, do you know? It, it seems to me that. For so much of my life, you know, when I was talking about South Africa today, so much of my life up to a point was focused on the, the racists and the abusers and the violators and the polluters and all of these people out there. And the only, the juncture at which that became workable was the juncture at which I was able with forgiveness to go into myself and acknowledge that those self-same energies were a potential within myself. Within myself, there is a capacity to abuse. Within myself, there are murderers. Within myself, there are polluters. There are people who, are, there are elements, aspects of myself that can be racist and homophobic and everything. And my willingness to be that frank that I could acknowledge to whatever degree is possible, and I don't for a moment suggest it's total, can acknowledge those within myself as the capacity to which I feel I've been able to free myself to respond to those situations outside of myself, not hamstrung by the lack of denial of what's true. And the practice, the meditation practice that we do, the insight meditation practice, helps me see these patterns and potentialities within myself and awareness and mindfulness gifts me with the protection that I will never, never act on those patterns mindlessly and thoughtlessly again. And that feels really important. You know that poem by Titnat Han, which is somewhere which I'm sure you've all heard, but if I could just share this with you and if you could listen to this as if you've never heard it before because many of you are familiar with it. He, he says it far more eloquently and beautifully than I could. He says, do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply, I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest. To be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower. To be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. 
I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries, all my laughs at once, so I can see my joy and my pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the doorway of compassion. speaking of beginning with ourself in the practices of uh, cultivating a loving heart and um, I find that that's a challenge to me as well as having compassion self uh, for self um, and I think in particular when I see a pattern that uh, comes up in a time when I'm really vulnerable or stressed or tired and um, I know better because I've been there before but I go there again and um, I'm able to feel the pain of it to myself as well as to those that are in relationship with me and um, the heavier part is the part of compassion for self and forgiveness and beginning again. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that. Or anyone else. Yeah, I, I remind you that, you know, we're a community here today. And so um, if it's meant to be, I certainly hope and pray that we will all hear from one another. I invite anybody to, of course, respond.
someone say about you that they, they love you so much because you're so real. And I really thank you for that. Um, and I thought what you've done today is so beautiful. I love the way you started out with how South Africa is the exact opposite place in the world. And that this extraordinary process of forgiveness has taken place on a political level there. That it, And then on you on a personal level there and you're bringing it back to us in this room today and, and I can bring it to all of my issues and I just thank you for this. <laughs> no, I wish I could I wish I could take you there and just see what's possible you know so many of us you know like Kathleen was saying is we feel so stuck and we feel at times, as I do, so hopeless, and the world seems so intractable, and we are so disempowered by those thoughts. And yet, it seems so important that we remember that ultimately the truth and love are triumphant, and that and that every possibility is available to every one of us in every way. And I think the most important for me thing to remember is the willingness to feel how difficult, to feel how difficult it is, how painful it is when that same pattern presents itself again and again. Because I think, you know, we talk about letting go as if it's s sort of something and, oh, well, you know, suddenly I read the right book and I let go, or, you know, I met somebody and they said it in just a perfect way and I let go. But it's not the way it happens. It's like the heart, I mean, is, is such a miracle in that in our willingness to feel the pain of our suffering, lie the very seeds of our liberation because at some point the heart just says no more. But it's not we that say, the heart says no more. And all we have to do, as you reminded me, is be willing to go back. To go back and feel the pain of distraction, the pain of avoidance, the pain of those patterns, and just be there, you know, and then eventually not our gender, but, you know, whatever the mystery unfathomable as it is, 
eventually there is just and it's not like we find enlightenment or we reach whatever it's the truth of who we are becomes apparent it's not outside of us the truth is there it's just you know like I was saying my Tai Chi teacher he helped me remember in that particular way of what's true already it's just that all the clouds have it hidden you know I'm not being very eloquent today (laughs) (laughs) but I'll forgive myself I'm, I'm really persistent. My blessing and my curse is persistence. But it's helped with a lot of things. And I, I, I was talking to Calvin at kind of a, almost like a forgiveness enlightenment a few years ago. And, and things progress, you know? And I feel like there's really a lot of things in my life that don't have a charge. And I feel very forgiven, forgiving of. And I've been pretty well myself, too. But one of the things that I've found with is that along with the forgiveness very often was um, disconnection because I'm not going to allow something to happen that I'm going to have to keep forgiving them over and over again, you know? Um, it'd be like the sea pirate thing. I mean, I'm going to avoid sea, I'm going to avoid being raped many times, you know, because I don't want to keep forgiving the same thing, so I hope it's a learning experience too. But it, like in the case of family, because I'm a different cloud than most of the members of my family. And I understand why they're like and I love them, but I can't really be around them because I just don't feel like taking abuse. And I don't want to keep abusing the same old thing if I can avoid taking it anyway. And and that's kind of a funny thing, you know, and, and I know everything's just right how it is. But it's still kind of hard. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Well, that was something that I don't have the answer to that, <laughs> but uh, it was a question that I had coming in. I, I read that the Western calendar, you know, you put each day. And um, I'm talking to, to some master and, and said, what would you do if six people or four people came in and you? And he said, I would do it with, them, with compassion. And um, they said, well, what does that mean? And they said, I'd take my sword and whack them, and then they'd be harmonized. So it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, like what she's saying, um, you need to forgive and be compassionate, but not, you know, but that response was just so opposite from sometimes what we think of as Zana Buddhism, this passiveness, you know, that isn't always the way. Uh, and I, I was interested to hear what you thought about that little thing. Well, you know, I think that, you know, I think that that the notion that that both the practice of forgiveness and the way of the Buddha is passive, you know, I think is one of the most tragic misconceptions that there is because I think it's actually the fiercest and you know the most warrior-like 
um, um, direction that one can take with this problem of being born human in a human body, surrounded by other humans. And so, you know, I think that, you know, the Zen master, you know, chopping their, 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 their heads off, you know, is a metaphor that, you know, it doesn't mean to say that because I'm a meditator that I'm going to be a pushover, you know? You know, and I think that, you know, there's a very important teaching about, um, um, oi, oi, oi. Um, it's completely escaped me, but it has to do with that when one is living one's life, for, oh, in a moment, if one is living in a centered place, the most appropriate response births itself. If we are carrying into that moment an idea of how we need to be, then the most appropriate loving, dynamic, responsive response to that situation and effective is not going to be possible because we're holding on to a position. And so for me, the beauty of the practice is that we're bringing ourselves to the moment, starting again and again and again, so that we can live our lives truly moment to moment, for the moment, in the moment, to the moment, with the moment, so that as we position ourselves when those guys come in the door, we are that clear, that centered, that, that it is the nature that the most appropriate response will birth itself, rather than, than you know, us thinking, well, what are we going to do when all of us are sitting in the room and, you know, 12 samurai come through there to attack us? We can all think about it and think about it, and by the time they come in, we don't stand a chance. But if we're clear, and if we're present, we'll know what to do. And so it's almost like it's so simple that our minds get discombobulated, because I'm going to answer your question by saying, return to the present moment. Because the present moment will birth the wisdom that is the most appropriate response. I mean, it's so beautiful. I mean, you know, the greatest, there is no security in this life. Now, I say that as if I know it. I know it to whatever degree I know it. And I have yet to find anything that feels secure. Having learned in the last week that I have to move out of my home has broken my heart, but it's another reminder that there's no security here. There's no security. And then my mind says, well, where the hell are we going to find security? Because we want it, you know? And it's nowhere. But the only security I feel the only sense of safety is in populating each moment of life as fully as possible. Because what we do in this moment is going to plant seeds for the future that are going to be, if this moment's wholesome, the laws of karma say that we are planting seeds that are going to be wholesome in the future. So all we can do is populate moment by moment by moment, and that's the only security, and it's not even a security, but it's the only thing that makes sense because nowhere out there is there any real sense of safety. Especially when it comes to dealing with other people. I mean, 
you know, if the world is nearly as neurotic as I am, <laughs> then we're in trouble, you know? So, so it's like, you know, like we can't order our families, we can't order. We can respond in a situation and in one moment the response might be, oh, I'm just going to remove myself, you know, I'm going to go, you know, outside or, or whatever. But, but if we hold too much to the notion that that's my rule now, when my family walk in the front door, I walk out the back, there's going to be a time when they're going to walk in the front door and you're going to be like that guy with the samurai, perfect and clear, and you're going to be able to be there in a way that is so powerful that could strengthen you, heal you, and them. Yeah. What because that'll happen yes. when it's right, or when it happens. then there's more of a chance of it happening. I liked what you said about uh, looking at all these seemingly dark or shadowy parts that are reflected to us from outside, you know, the killers and the abusers, and then looking inside uh, to acknowledge the part of ourself that could be that way or is that way. And um, I think there's something really powerful in that. Um, because as I reflect on my question to you earlier, I can see that um, uh, the, in the pattern I was discussing, I tend to um, react to something in someone else that I'm, that I'm offended by. And then I realize that actually that's a mirror for me that what I am actually doing to myself. So unraveling it that way, with that insight, it's like, oh, well, if I took care of myself better, you know, the way that I would want this other person to care or be compassionate or whatever, I would be more centered, like you said, and I would be able to be in the present moment in a way that would reinforce my own healing and perhaps heal in the relationship, you know. And, um, I think we have to be careful also with that kind of thinking because it's so easy to, you know, there's a kind of a new age thinking. I'm, I'm not for a moment suggesting that that's what you're mm -hmm. saying, it's not. But I just want to just interrupt you for a moment and say, you know, there's this notion of people that say, oh, well, you know, the samurai come in the door, it's something in myself, you know, and, you know, and, you know, and kind of take it on, you know, in some way. That's not at all what I'm saying. You know, that um, there's just something powerful about, about, uh, about acknowledging the potential within myself for the things that particularly charge me outside of myself. And it's not to excuse them, and it's not to diminish or invalidate a situation, but where my heart is going with this is that there, 
there is an essential bottom line, water table level, where we all sense and know to whatever degree that we are intimate with one another and interconnected. And that, that if one person is diagnosed with AIDS, we all have AIDS. If one child is abused, we are all abused. That we are not separate, we are not isolated, we are not islands unto ourselves. And it's a very powerful way to live one's life. I mean, that's what uh, the Tibetans call bodhicitta, when we live with that amount of emptiness within ourselves that we feel that intimacy with others, then everyone's issues are our issues and so we don't protect ourselves from other people so much, but we are protected by the experience of knowing that intimacy with, with one another. And so when, when from that perspective, when somebody is behaving in a way that, say, drives us crazy, there's, there's a more absolute understanding of that, that in a way, you know, here is Diane playing that piece, you know, and here's Anne and Peter playing that piece of me, you know, it's almost like playing different strings of the same guitar. It's, re it's really beautiful, you know. Does that make sense? <laughs> wondered, you know, I've been on medications before, I've done this meditation series before, I've, you know, tried to live my life this way before, I've tried you know, all kinds of different ways of approaching it, and I'm really just not able to do anything about it. And I do accept it, it's part of me. Um, I don't reject it. Um, um, it's just so self-defeating that I feel like I'm not getting Would you be willing to say just a little more about self-defeating? It's, um, you know, they, they did this one study about college students who were depressed. And they had a group of college students who were depressed, who were clinically depressed, and they knew they were depressed. And then they had a controlled group of students who presumably were not depressed. And they had them walk from the bookstore to the library. And when they got to the library, which was like 10 minutes away, they had to tell 
what they had seen along the way. And people were not depressed said, oh, uh, I saw the grass and it was really green, it was great. And then I saw these two kind of young lovers, they were necking and that was kind of neat. And, you know, it was warm and I saw flowers and I, you know, and then they, the group of depressed students, when they asked them what they saw, it was like a totally different vision. You know, I, the first thing I saw was a dead bird that had been half eaten by a cat. And then I went fur further and there was a snail that was smashed. And there were weeds and the grass was brown over on that hill. And I was tired and it was hard. And I mean, their whole perception, this was a real study that was done, um, is altered. So it isn't just what you perceive in yourself, it's how you perceive everything around you. But what you perceive in yourself um, is it's self-defeating because it destroys your will. You don't, um, it isn't a matter of just saying, I can climb that mountain because you don't have the will to say that. And I have a lot of will. I have lived through a lot. So to find myself in positions where I have no will, um, that's self-defeating. I feel very moved and respectful of what you've said, I'd, I'd like to ask if we could just have a moment together before I respond. Of quiet, please. not able to speak from my experience because while I've dealt with my own particular kinds of depression, I've certainly not dealt with what you're describing. So I certainly can't offer any experience that comes from that kind of reference. So I'm going to just speak a little of my own and I hope and pray that it might be helpful. And of course, once again, we're a community here, you know. 
caring community. You know, we come to the meditation practice and, you know, we do retreats and, and, you know, people are going to do the retreat for the next week and they're going to be taught certain practices and we got the forgiveness and the loving kindness and all these different practices and they're all well and good. But what is always important, I feel, to remember is that these are just fingers pointing at the moon that these, these are just ways to help us. You know, when I say come back to the breath or, or the willingness to begin again and again, these are just words to try and help us incline to, to what is true. And that at some point for all of us, all the forms have to fall away because all the forms, all the words, lying down and saying, I forgive myself, all of that has to fall away because all of those are extra. The, the deepest experience of oneself is way beyond words and concepts and forms. Way beyond. But we need the words, the concepts, the forms, the structures in order to, to, to help us at that place let go and drop into the deepest truth, as, say, the Buddha did. And so when you said that you, you know, you've done a lot of meditation and you've got a lot of will, which I sense that you do, and I salute that, um, these are comments I have. One is that, from my experience, one is that there have been times when I felt so depressed and so overwhelmed by the circumstances of my life that all I've been able to do is to say, I care. And I've done retreats where I've laid on my bed with my teddy bear and just said, I care. I care. About yourself. About myself. I care. I care. Nothing more. Because more words are painful. But I just, even in this, I care. After I was diagnosed with AIDS in 1989, I completely came apart. And part of that, in the pieces around me, was that I remembered sexual abuse that dated right back to my infancy. I re-experienced what happened when I was a couple of months old. That's when it started. I didn't know at the beginning. So talking about the process being an unfolding. And in that, I was completely bereft. It felt like I had no center, nothing. And all I could do, I had one friend who said to me, just say, I care, if you mean it. And that's all I did. For weeks, I lay and I care, and I care. And the world seemed dreadful. Everywhere I saw, I just saw bloodshed and persecution and dreadfulness. And all I said was, I care, even when I didn't care. It was, I just, I inclined my mind. I felt like I could say those two words and nothing more. And if I, if I got more involved, I would have, I felt like I would have either slipped my own throat or slipped the throat of everybody else that was on the tree. Well, it might have been satisfying in the moment. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're on a retreat, there's always somebody that you really want to get rid of. 
you know. So that's one thing I offer for whatever, you know, and it might be that there is your own particular version, you know. I have a particular version of that, and yeah. when I am in my most dire straits, whether it's from emotional pain or physical pain, I say, Yeah. You see, for me, for me, it's okay doesn't work because in those times it's not okay. So for me, saying it's okay and it not being okay, there's a conflict there. Yeah. So if it works, it works. You see, that's the one of the incredible things about living when there's a Buddha alive is that a Buddha is able to see into the heart of everybody and know exactly the meditation that works. Like, the Buddha would come to you and see, you were a goldsmith, and say, ah, oh, now I want to awaken you. So what the Buddha did was, he went and he got a golden lotus, and he said, now hold that golden lotus. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now, now contemplate in that golden lotus. And the Buddha apparently, w with these powers now, made that golden lotus slowly start falling apart. He said, now, now keep looking. Now keep looking at the golden lotus. And as that lotus fell apart and turned into dust and turned into something disgusting, the heart of the goldsmith completely broke because that was the meditation. He loved beauty, or she loved beauty, and l l loved it so deeply and so profoundly to the very bottom of her or his soul that when that golden lotus completely fell apart, that person was completely opened. That was the meditation for the goldsmith. The Buddha knows exactly what it is that's going to help different people. That's one of the the, the capabilities. Could I have the golden lotus? <laughs> 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 yeah, right. <laughs> 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 yeah, right. So, so, so you know, I you know, I tell that story because all of we we have these generic meditations because we don't have Buddhas around, you know. But whatever works, do it wholeheartedly and drop it when it no longer works. Now, the other thing that I felt like I wanted to respond to was you said you have a, a lot of will, and then the will goes. Now, I offer this carefully and respectfully, but you know, when I was talking earlier about there's no security. There is no security in this world. Not even our will. And so, if we're looking for security in our will, we're looking for security where it cannot be. And so, we have to be with the seasons when there's will and when there's no will. Because that is the nature of this human realm. Everything arises like the breath comes and goes. And as you say, the, dep the depression comes and goes in its severity. You know? And in the moment when you're able to see a golden lotus beside you when you're walking instead of a crushed snail, really acknowledge that because it's really important that we remember there are golden lotuses. Because when we're used to the darkness, the only thing that in my dark nights, like in, in the last weeks that were really hard for, for me, the really hard times in the middle of the night, 
when Desh and Miriam were sleeping upstairs and everybody was quiet and it was so hard, I would go to the ocean and look at the starlight dancing on the water and just, just even though I f it felt so, so, it felt like the bottom had fallen out of my world, I was determined that I was not going to at the same time acknowledge that this world is also unbelievably beautiful. And even though I couldn't acknowledge it, that I was going to allow the starlight to dance in my heart at the same time, even if I couldn't feel its loveliness. And so I offer that also. No, that's, that's a very No, mine's not diligent. <laughs> really, don't, no, no, you know, I say that not in a self-effacing way. I say it in a really important way. It's very easy for us to look outside of ourselves and say, oh, well, he's doing it better or he's more advanced. That's nonsense. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. Your liberation is the liberation of all of us. As this becomes more workable, our lives become more workable. As I heal the legacy of sexual abuse, and as I live one more day with this disease, all of us are living another day, and all of us are healing. So it's like, like we're all playing a piece. A whole number of people here are going on retreat next week. They think they're going on retreat, but what they don't know is they're going on retreat for all of us. They're taking all of us with them on retreats. It's probably a terrifying thought. <laughs> but it's true. You send me a postcard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you to talk about uh, with this practice of insight and loving-kindness sometimes the insight practice is really difficult it's uh, for me where I get uh, lost in the uh, experience rather than being able to note it and um, it seems like at moments like that, I, if I let go of that for a moment and just come back to the starlight or the goodness in myself or something, that's more like a loving-kindness practice where I'm seeing purpose, I'm using my mind to evoke, bring some softer place into focus, um, helps. So I was wondering sometime today if you could talk about how far go with the insight and when it's appropriate to come back to the loving-kindness or self-forgiveness or self-compassion. I will get to it. Okay. So, I'm aware that we've been sitting for a while. What I would like to suggest, is there anybody that has like a really pressing thing that they need to say? I'm aware, of course, that there are a number of people that haven't spoken. I don't want to just end us if there's anything important. Because I think we're kind of getting close to lunchtime, you'd be glad to know. There we go. We'll all munch on some starlight. Um, 
<laughs> so what I would like to suggest is that we maybe have um, a period of time outside, you know, just being quiet, maybe doing some walking meditation, and then come together um, for a few minutes before uh, um, doing a blessing uh, for food, and then have a break for lunch. How does that sound? Is that okay? So once again, I would like to invite you to really give care and attention to to these transition times, the in-between times, keeping a sense of loving presence with whatever is coming up. We've had a lot of words and a lot of feelings, and just today is a day in the quiet and in the listening that's possible in quiet to just be with wherever you are right now. And what I'd like to ask is that we just spend a minute or so together in silence. Oh, a bell ringer. Thanks, Faith. Um, if you could say, ring the bell at about. One oh five. Thank you. So shall we sit together for a few moments? just the way we are. May we be peaceful with what's happening. May we love ourselves completely. May we forgive ourselves without limit. And may all beings everywhere be freed from suffering. What I would like to do just very briefly is offer a vision of the inside meditation practice. Um, because this afternoon what I would like to do is focus more directly on the forgiveness practice together. And so I just want to be sure that um, I just offer uh, um, a vision of insight meditation for those of you who are new to the practice. As happened this morning, we, we used the breath as an anchor to begin to collect the mind, to still the mind, focusing on the sensations of the breathing as the breath enters and leaves the body. 
mindfulness of breathing, of sensations in the body, a very important part of Buddhist meditation practice. But the vision of insight meditation is that we bring that quality of bare attention, that quality of mindfulness, awareness, to every aspect and facet of our experience without exception. So the vision is that we include all of life, that we're not in the business of protecting ourselves, but that we eventually open to everything with that same quality of attention. So from the sensations in the body of breathing, we open to the sensations of sitting, to the posture, the feelings of the elements in the body of fire, water, earth, pressure, flow, heat, cold. We experience the body, we populate it fully and know it, understand it. Then we open to the experience of hearing. Through the ear we hear, we open to sounds with that same quality of non-judging, non-conceptual awareness. A sound arises, it's just hearing. And then we open to seeing in the same way. We see without words. It's amazing that this whole complex mystery and beautiful world around us is fundamentally just form and color and movement. All the rest is extra, all the rest is words. So can we bring that same quality of attention that we just see as things are, free of words, concepts, judging, pushing, pulling, just beginning to allow things to be as they are, sounds, sights, sensations in the body. So too with emotions, we open to our emotional life. We just allow the feelings of, of anger and rage and indignation and love and tenderness and forgiveness and mercy and boredom and frustration to arise with that same quality of just being with the bare experience of what's happening. Lunchtime is an opportunity to experience two of the other ways that we experience the world. We experience the world in six ways. The whole mystery of life is experienced in six ways. Through the body with feeling, through the ear with hearing, through the eye with seeing, through the mind, thoughts, and emotions, and memories. And then five is through the nose and smelling, and six is the tongue tasting. The whole of life can be distilled to, to the experience of the six sense doors, as they called um, in Buddhist scriptures. And so at lunchtime, you may want to experiment with your food of just tasting. See if you can taste without words, taste the texture without adding anything extra. And also smelling. You, you may want to, to see how difficult it is to just allow oneself the pure and beautiful experience of just smelling the fragrance and the aromas of the food. And so using the breath as an anchor, the, the vision of the practice is that we open to everything, 360 degrees without exception, this dance of life through the different sense doors, the ears, the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the mind and the body. And that's the vision of insight meditation. We'll be doing a little more of it this afternoon, but I want to be sure to mention that. This afternoon, um, 
And of course, you know, what we bring will define what we do. But my sense is that it, it might be skillful for us to spend a period of time doing uh, some just gentle forgiveness work together in meditation. I will offer instructions and we'll inv- invoke uh, some people and situations inwardly together. Um, and so I invite you during the lunch period, if you want to, just reflect on on the issue of forgiveness and any situations or people that you may like to bring inwardly uh, to our time together this afternoon. And what I'd like to suggest is that instead of sitting as we are now this afternoon, that those of you in the middle, if we could just do it as a circle so that there's that real sense of us being circular together this afternoon. So when we come together, which it's about 1.15 now. How would you feel about a 2.15 coming together? Would that be okay with an hour for lunch? Okay, because we only have till 5 o'clock. Yeah? Any objections? Okay, so a bell ringer. Somewhere in this room is, is our two o'clock <coughs> bell ringer. God bless you. So will you ring the bell at two and maybe a little louder because we might have some slumbering souls <laughs> around the place. Where is the bell? It's on the railing right on the left side. <coughs> Great. And so, um, uh, bon appetit. And uh, a reminder that Donna is on the counter, on the kitchen counter. Beautiful mango Donna. That's the generosity <coughs> I r- remind you to experiment with the continuity of the awareness through the lunch break. of this meditation, giving attention (coughs) to the experience of the body, mindfulness of the body in the body, being aware of the experience of the elements manifesting moment to moment as heat or cold, hardness, (coughs) pressure, tingling, throbbing, whatever is manifesting moment to moment cultivating a willingness to be simply present with the truth of what is occurring. It's helpful particularly after lunch when you're perhaps feeling a little dopey and tired to hold the posture a little more um, energetically, a little more clearly. 
And then once again being aware as you feel drawn to return to the changing sensations of the breath as the breath enters and leaves your body. Arriving together here this afternoon fully in our bodies, moment to moment to moment. Without changing what we find, without manipulating, just having a heart that is open and accepting to the truth of whatever arises. If your attention is called to a sound or a thought, emotion, it's allowing the awareness to move to whatever has arisen, giving that same quality of unjudging, non-conceptual awareness to what arises. Nothing is an interruption in meditation unless we choose to make it so. Open-handed, open-hearted meditation. Always remembering that the willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the meditation practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.